Amen. Thank you, choir. Very grateful for you guys. Uh, We are in Revelation chapter 21 this morning, so uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, turn there, Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 21. And if you are able, if you will stand with me in the reading of God's Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, as we enter this morning into what I see as a very joyous and amazing section of your scriptures, Lord, we pray that as you are with us, just as you promised, that you will uh, empower us by your Holy Spirit to live out the truths of your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I heard the story of Mike who walked into a post office just before Valentine's Day. He couldn't help noticing a middle-aged, balding man standing in a corner sticking love stamps on bright pink envelopes with hearts all over them. Then uh, the man got out a bottle of Chanel No. 5 perfume from his pocket and started spraying the scent all over the envelopes. By now, Mike's curiosity had got the better of him, and so he asked the man why he was sending out all those cards. The man replied, well, I'm sending out 500 Valentine cards signed, guess who? But why, asked Mike. Well, I'm a divorce lawyer, replied the man. Okay, some of you will get it later. Now, this lawyer invested in what would pay off. I wonder if we do. This is the issue at the heart of these final two chapters of Revelation. See, this week we'll be looking at this amazing imagery that John provides to us about the new heaven and the new earth. But before I jump into there, Let me take you to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you happen to have your Bible, 
Please feel free to turn there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes these words. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, when Paul writes that we're to set our minds on things that are above, he certainly has in mind things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with others, forgiving one another, and love which binds all these things together, as he tells us later in the letter to the Colossians. But he also has in mind the glories of heaven, and the new heaven, and the new earth, which John is going to symbolically present to us here in these chapters that we'll be focusing on. And so to set our minds on heaven means this should be our vision as individuals and as the body of Christ here at Parkway. Our ultimate destination is our vision. And the ultimate destination of all history should be a guiding light for our lives. It should guide every way in which we invest our time, our talent, our treasures. It needs to instruct us in how we spend the finances of the church. It should regularly cause us to reflect on how we are investing in God's kingdom as faithful individual stewards as well. Now, it's a, it's a common saying that one is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. But I've come to believe that this is entirely wrong. Now, I certainly understand the sentiment that someone is so busy doing churchy stuff that they don't bother to see the needs around them. But the saying, I believe, gets things completely backwards. And so if you like to keep notes, and this will be the, on the insert in your bulletin there, point one is this. Biblically, we need to be very heavenly-minded, maybe even entirely heavenly-minded. Then we'll be truly earthly good for eternal purposes. So now on a, on a popular level, we uh, tend to have a pretty distorted view of heaven today. We have visions of heaven that are really pathetically small. You know the images of angels and people with halos on their heads floating around on puffy white clouds, wearing white robes, having wings, and playing a harp. You all know the vision, that uh, image, right? Now, I, I like harps. I think uh, every orchestra should have one harp. But... Uh, that vision of heaven really doesn't appeal to me much. And I don't look all that good in white. So let me uh, give you one example of what I believe the Bible teaches us about what heaven is like. In, uh, do you remember Jesus' parable of the talents? The first uh, servant was given five talents, and he used the finances, invested, and worked with what he was given and produced five more. And his master tells him, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So in other words, he's going to have more work to do. More work to do in heaven. There will be good work. 
eternal work, hard work that will be exciting, full of joy, and gives us opportunities for growth and service to one another and to God's new heaven and new earth forever. Now, to me, that's a much more exciting and biblical understanding of heaven than flying around or sitting on clouds, an eternity of serving our Lord and billions of others, brothers and sisters in Christ, serving one another. Let me give you another example. Some people think that in heaven we'll just immediately know everything like God does. But Scripture never indicates that God's omniscience, his knowledge of everything, will just be given to us. Instead, what we're told is that there will be people from every country, tongue, tribe, and nation with every different background. Now, uh, if you, like me, are a little slow in learning languages, who cares? It might take me millions and millions and even billions or possibly even trillions of years to learn those languages, but the point is, is we'll be growing and learning, learning about others, learning to communicate with one another, getting to know all the millions and billions of God's people throughout eternity. I think this is really much more exciting. Or consider this, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, this bondage and corruption that exists on the current earth will be removed. And a massive transformation is going to occur This is uh, indeed what is symbolically indicated here in in verse 1 of our chapter. We're told that there will be no more sea. See, we've seen the imagery of this before in Revelation because the sea symbolizes the place of unsteadiness, of evil and judgment in the Old Testament and in the time of Christ. See, this isn't telling us the hydrological makeup of the new earth. So point two is this on your outline. There being no more sea means the total abolition and destruction of everything that is evil and corrupt. All the immorality is entirely wiped away. What an amazing future. And in verse two we read, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. See, the holy city isn't just an old city. It's a city of the king. This is the new Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul describes the old covenant and the new covenant and the old and new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's above. And we who believe in Jesus are part of that new Jerusalem. This is a vision of perfect community. 
community that is loving and uh, is a, a, made up of a loving and perfected people living in healthy, righteous relationships with one another. See, there are two cities consistently pictured in the book of Revelation. There's Babylon, full of greed and corruption, which is also referred to as the fallen harlot. And then there is the new Jerusalem, a perfect community, David's city. And this is point three on your outline. The new Jerusalem symbolizes a future of real community, of relationships of complete, unmarred love. See, we can only imagine what that'll be like. Think for a moment about the best relationship you've ever had. And now take away all the selfishness and failings that mar that relationship and multiply that by the billions of perfected people you will know intimately in heaven for eternity. Because our selfishness will be stripped away, we will know everyone intimately and each one thinking of others above themselves perfectly. What an amazing promise. I can only imagine what that will be. Then we're told in verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Now let me just say that this is a theme that goes way back. Way back in the Old Testament and throughout the New as well. For example, take Leviticus chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Now in context, God is speaking about dwelling with them in the tabernacle. He's just brought them out of Egypt, and now he dwells in their midst. Much later, when we get to the time of the prophet's This intensifies as Jeremiah looks forward to the new covenant and he writes in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, it's the same kind of language again. But now it's intensified in meaning and in the depth of the relationship. And now here in verse 3 of our passage, We have the same kind of language, but again, an increased intensity. Our God and we, His people, are brought together in inexhaustible intimacy. And this is point four on your outline. The love and intimacy that we have in Christ today is wonderful, but it's just a small taste of the intensity of the love and intimacy that we will share with him. Verse 4 reads this way. He will wipe 
every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time really grasping the fullness of this. The entire old order will be gone. Death will be abolished. No more mourning. No more heartbreak. No more crying and no more pain. All will be made new. When I visit someone that I'm informed will be dying soon, I will often read these verses to them whether they're Christians or not. And if they're Christians, they'll immediately light up, understanding something of the glory of what this means. But if they're not Christians, I want to share the hope that is only in Christ Jesus. You know, in the last few years, these verses have taken on more meaning for me. When I was uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor, I understood that I could soon be letting go of everyone and everything that was important to me. The years of headaches and neck pain that I've experienced since and still would deal with every day has given me more insight to the depths of the hope that we have in Christ. So often we Christians in America live such comfortable lives that we consider heaven as an extension of this life. Most Christians around the world and throughout history have lived lives of trial, of suffering, of poverty, and struggles, so much so that heaven has meant so much more for them. And this is point five on your outline. What we look forward to is when all tears, all sorrow, all illness and sickness and death is gone. While we live today with God's mediating grace and share in so much that is good in nature and we share in goodness and kindness shown to us from others, everything, everything is still marred by sin, by death, decay, and sickness. But there will soon come a time when all is made new. See, our hope is not in this world order. Our hope is never in the winds of political change or the wealth that we're able to amass for ourselves today. Now, there have been dozens of books and now movies as well that are often referred to as heaven tourism literature. You might have read some yourself. People supposedly dying and going to heaven. Most of those books have little to do, really, with the realities of heaven that were presented in God's Word, and many say nothing about the requirement of a, a trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. I've uh, tended to be highly skeptical of all those books because I see so many inconsistencies with God's Word. See, John's revelation is very different than all the books I've read in that genre. In uh, verses 5 to 8, God speaks, and he speaks in a very emphatic way. See, the Savior, when he was on the cross, cried out, It is finished. The risen and glorified Jesus from the throne says, It is done. When Jesus on the cross cried, It's finished, he was saying there's no longer any need for sacrifice for sin. It's all paid for. All the needed sacrifice was accomplished. All the sin of people stored up from the beginning of time to all the sins occurring now and all the sins in the future are now atoned for in Jesus Christ. 
God's wrath is satisfied. Now that doesn't mean that there's no more struggle. I want to remind you of uh, our sermon in Revelation 12. Because Satan has been defeated at the cross, he is full of rage and allowed by God to vent that rage on earth. He knows his time is short, and so he rages against believers. So Christ does put hedges around him. Satan, the defeated foe, still rages. Christ's victory is a perfect and complete amount. It's a thousand years amount, as symbolically described in Revelation chapter 20, which I am not preaching on directly. Yet Satan rages for a short time, as indicated in that last chapter. Christ's victory is a thousand years, which is symbolic of an eternal amount. And the symbolism for Satan is a short time. A bound and defeated Satan rages for a short time. And so I, like the Protestant reformers, believe that symbolism of the thousand years points not to a a literal thousand years, but to the fullness of Christ's victory versus the short time of the rage of Satan. At the cross, Satan is defeated. His time is short. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan, the defeated foe, rages today. But now, in Revelation 21, it is done. All the gospel promises in part we have tasted in powerful reality, but still, that's only in anticipation. Soon, in consummation. Now the voice from the throne says, write this, it is done. This short time of Satan's rage is over, and now the full consummation of God's purpose in redemption and renewal has come. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lion, who is the Lamb, emerges from the center of the throne. Jesus alone is qualified to take all of God's purposes and bring them to pass. It is done. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 55, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. The waters and the wine, milk and the richest fare. It's an image of God's Word. The rich and wonderful truth of God's Word. And now at the end we receive that life-giving Word without end. And in verse 7 we read, those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Now in the Greek, which uh, sadly in this translation is somewhat hidden, this this verse is in the singular. The one who is victorious will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, I'm not saying that the text doesn't include both men and women. It obviously does, and it's important to point that out. And clearly, the translators wanted to include that idea. But in this particular verse, it's important to highlight the aspect of son and father. Well, uh, why? Before I answer that question, let me do a quick survey. How many of you today have followed in the steps of either your father and mother and had the same vocation as your mother or father? How many? Okay. 
Very, very few. Very few. But see, that was not true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if your father was a farmer, you were a farmer. If your father is a baker, you were a baker. And so your identity is tied up in your family and the vocation of your family. And out of this cultural reality comes this very important biblical metaphor that we find throughout Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment and the Beatitudes. One of those Beatitudes reads this way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. First, let me point out that Jesus isn't saying this message is only for men and not for women. Okay, that's not the point. And Jesus also isn't saying go out and cause peace to happen all around you, and then you'll become a Christian. But rather, God is the supreme peacemaker in this world, especially when it comes to true and real spiritual peace. And therefore, as you go out and embody that peacemaking, you are acting like God, and therefore a son of God. Well, let me give you another example. Abraham is referred to as the father of the faithful, and he believed God. He trusted God and God's promises, and those who also believe God, believe God's promises, trust in God, we are called sons of Abraham. See, the son of God language is actually very important. This is central to the climactic picture of what it means to set our minds on things that are above, to set our treasures and hearts on what God has in store for us. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as sons of God. Individual believers are sometimes referred to as God's son. But now there are no asides, no footnotes, no sidebars, no exceptions. The one who is victorious will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And this is point six on your outline. We're to set our minds on things above, on our true identity in Christ fully in the future, but now in part. And growing in that grace each day as we set our minds there. You see, we, are, we who are Christians look forward to a time when we will truly reflect God. Our fallen nature will be gone. We who are created in His image will fully reflect that image completely unencumbered by the sin and failings that so corrupt us. And this is point seven. Our character, our desires, our attitude, our behaviors will be so reflective of the holiness, justice, and love of God that we will be called sons of God. His full glory revealed in our lives. See, yeah, we have been created in the image of God. And yes, sin has distorted that image horribly, often to the point where nothing of God is reflected in us. And even the best and most wonderful people who have ever lived have only reflected the image of God in a small way, compared to the full reflection of God. It's only in Christ do we get the full image of God on display, full of truth and grace and love, and this will someday be our identity fully and completely. 
while his joy and love and grace and truth are reflected in our lives now in part and increasingly each day as we keep our eyes and hearts on things that are above, we will fully reflect him in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be like him in every possible way that human beings can be like him. In every way that we ought to be like him, we will be like Jesus. I will be his father and he will be my son. Paul describes this in the early chapters of Romans, echoing the same thought. Let me summarize that for you. We're converted, we're regenerated, we are new creations, but we still have the flesh. We have a new creation imprisoned in unredeemed flesh. It's like a a body of death that clings to us and drags us down and transfers its infection to us. One day we will truly and fully reflect the full identity that we've been given in part today. No more sin. No more hypocrisy. No more sorrow. For all the rest of eternity, we will no longer ever have to ask for forgiveness. Think about that. It's almost unbelievable. We'll never need to ask forgiveness from one another or of God because we will be His Son. In 1 John chapter 3, we read these words, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's true for us now. But then he says, But it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And what God has started in us, He will bring to completion. This gives us hope, gives us strength. We need to invest in this reality. To dwell on this creates a passion in us, empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us, to embody that more fully even now as individuals, as His body here at Parkway. We read this in verse 8, that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. See, in chapter 20, this was the fate of Satan and his allies. So one's final destiny will either be as a son, being fully transformed into total Christ-likeness, or as the cowardly and the unbelieving and be consigned to the place of the devil, the place of the beast, and the false prophet. There's no third choice, no second chance once the curtain closes. One of my uh, seminary professors used to tell of a young woman in his church who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. So she was getting her things in order. She contacted him and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she would have liked to read. Everything was in order, and the professor who was her pastor at the time was preparing to leave when the young woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing. What's that? Well, this is very important, the young woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. He stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? 
Well, to be honest, I am puzzled by that request, he said. The young woman explained, in all my years of attending social potlucks and dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming. Like a velvety chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie. Something wonderful. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. At the funeral, people were walking by the young woman's casket, and they saw the fork placed in her right hand. Over and over, this professor heard the question, what's with the fork? And over and over again, he smiled. During his message, he told the people of the conversation he had with that young woman shortly before she died. He also told them about the fork and about what it symbolized for her. He told the people how he couldn't stop thinking about the fork, and he told them that they probably wouldn't be able to stop thinking about it either. He was right. And so this is point eight on your outline. The next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you that the best is yet to come. See, this is John's message. The best of the best of the best is yet to come, much better than anything we've known. So let's set our minds and affections on the things that are above. An amazing, massive community of every tribe, tongue, and nation that's made up of perfect relationships, and a deep and abiding intimacy with our Lord, a place of no more mourning, no more pain or sorrow or sickness or death, in a place with no sin or corruption. That is our home. This is not. When the trials of life come, and they will come, remember your real home. When the temptations of Babylon press in, remember your true home. When life's disappointments and pains come, when you experience bouts of depression, remember this is not your home. Or if things are going well, maybe your football team has won the big game, your child or grandchild has graduated, gotten that new dream job, or has just found their life mate, and you find yourself in exaltation. The reality is, is that will only last a short while. Remember the joys of heaven are so much more greater than our short-lived joys in this sadness and our sadness in comparison. So keep your fork. The best is yet to come. Let's pray together.